Okay, everybody, let's uh, continue on together. Good morning, King's Church. It is great to see all of you. It's good to be back in the auditorium, which is better lit than normal, which is great. Um, good to see all of you. And good to see if you're new or visiting. Really glad that you're here. You might be looking out on this church or just looking into the Christian faith generally because you're not sure. Whatever, whatever you are here, really glad that you are here. And uh, you picked a good week to be here because as Nick said, we're just kind of at the beginning of our new series called Spotlight. And uh, my name's Philip, by the way, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's my joy this morning to get into this series. We're looking at the character of God. And we're asking a pretty profound question each week, which is this, what is God like? Which is kind of one of the bigger questions that you can ask. What is God like? And, and, what, and what you think about God and how you think about God really does affect everything. It's a huge question to have to know the answer to. If you are a Christian, it affects everything, what you think God to be and what you think God is like. It affects how you worship him. It affects how you pray. It affects how you read the Bible. It affects how you think he sees you. It affects how you treat people. It affects how you use your body, money, time. How you see God, what you believe God to be like, affects everything. If you're not yet a Christian or you're not sure if you're a Christian, this is a really important question because whatever you end up believing about God will be based on what you believe him to be like or not to be like. So this is a massive question for all of us to come to a conclusion about what is God like? And my heart each week is that we gaze at a particular characteristic of God and we're brought, I trust, to, to worship him above all else, really. This is less about kind of some of the day-to-day -day practical application of life, that we'll hear some of that. It's a bit more about just taking a pause, taking a stock, spiritually looking up and beholding God for all the wonderful, majestic God that he is. And to introduce this morning's attribute of God, I'm going to give you two clues, one musical and one biblical. I'm not going to sing, fear not, I can see some terrified expressions emerging. Ellen's going to help me with the musical clue, and then I'll get into scripture in a moment. So Ellen, could you just play for us uh, three distinct notes? Not quite sure what they're going to be, but you can maybe tell us. And those three notes out of interest are? G, C, and E. Okay, that's G, C, and E. Three distinct notes, each one filling the space in its entirety and its fullness, but distinct in and of themselves. Could you maybe now, Ellen, put those three notes together into one chord? And just to be clear, that's the same three notes making same three notes. that chord. Yeah, my musical understanding is limited, so I've got to clarify these things. Ellen, stay with us. But she just uh, demonstrated for us three notes, each one distinct in and of itself, each one filling the room in its entirety, but also those three separate distinct notes coming together in one chord. Second clue is from Scripture. And I'm in Mark chapter 1 and verse 9. And we're going to be leaping around the Bible a fair bit because the nature of this kind of series is looking at the character of God. We've got to kind of have a, a full view of Scripture. So I'll be leaping around a fair bit, but I will start and finish in this particular passage. So we'll ground ourselves in, um, in John chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 and 11. This is Mark's account of the life of Jesus Christ based on Peter's eyewitness testimony. And he writes this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. 
And so here we have, of course, one of, the, one of many, but perhaps one of the clearest pieces of scripture that we have, which testify to this morning's character or attribute of God that we're shining a spotlight on, which is this, that God is both one being and also three persons, each of whom is fully God. So in this particular passage, we have God the Father speaking lovingly over God the Son, who in turn receives God the Spirit for the mission that lies ahead of him. It's a beautiful Trinitarian passage. In fact, Ellen, I wonder whether you can give us, kind of just to help us keep understanding this, can you give us three notes again? And then the chord. So each, each note of the Godhead is able to exist in and of itself, filling the space in its own entirety. But each note comes together, each person comes together in one chord, one being, one Godhead, fully, fully God. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Thank you, Ellen, for, for helping us. And the Christian understanding of God is that he is triune, and it's hugely important. It's a hugely important truth about who God is. In fact, much about who God is and what he's done for us rests upon the reality of him being triune, which is why every time the church has gone into kind of funny uh, heretical angles, it's usually come from diminishing something of the doctrine of the Trinity. It's hugely important, and of course, it's hugely difficult to understand, as I've discovered for myself a little bit this week. In fact, one theologian put it like this. The Trinity is thoroughly biblical, thoroughly baffling, and thoroughly beautiful. And I'm going to unpack it a little bit like that by talking to you about the knowledge of the Trinity, the truth that we can know, the mystery of the Trinity, in that sense what we can't know, and also, thirdly, the beauty of the Trinity, how its beauty will personally impact you today, us, this week. So the knowledge, the mystery, and the beauty of the Trinity. Number one, the knowledge. So the word Trinity is not in the Bible. It was, it was, uh, it, people came up with it in the second century. Tri meaning three, and unity meaning oneness. But it represents the truth of what's in the Bible. So it's a term that tells us what the Bible teaches. And what I want to do is break down what the Bible tells us that we can know about the Trinity into kind of five components, and then we'll kind of build them back up together into one holistic whole. Um, And we're going to go a fair rate of knots, but I want you to kind of keep with me, and then we're going to see, I think, more and more of the wonder of it in our own lives. So number one, first component of the truth of the Trinity is that God is one. It says in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4, bear in mind this is a polytheistic culture of loads and loads of gods. So very radically, um, God says through Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then Jesus in the New Testament, in Mark 12, verse 29, he affirms that by saying, The Lord our God is one Lord. So God is one I'm not talking about multiple gods, talking about one God. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. At which point you might say, well, what about the other monotheistic religions? What about Judaism and, and Islam and so forth? And this is where Christianity departs from them as well, because it's saying there's only one God, which makes it distinct from lots of other world religions, but it's also saying there are three persons within that one God, which makes it distinct from Judaism and Islam. So number one, God is one. Number two, God is three in the New Testament, 
The Apostle Paul is writing a couple of letters to the church in Corinth, and he spends much of those two letters kind of um, almost exploring as he writes the truth of the Trinity. He often references the divinity of each one, but in different ways. And then at the end of his second letter, the last sentence that he writes is a prayer for the church that he's writing to. And in fact, it's a prayer that the church has used over the last 2,000 years. And we're going to use it in a moment. We're going to pray this prayer over each other. And at the end of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 13 and verse 14, Paul, in a kind of moment of crystal clear clarity, expresses the Trinity like this. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Why don't we just pray that prayer over us as a church? You can look at the person next to you, behind you, in front of you, and we're going to pray that over each other, okay? May, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's a powerful prayer. It's a wonderful prayer. It's a Trinitarian prayer. Now, some people say, well, the Trinity is kind of only in the New Testament. That's what the Christians came up with. They were the ones that kind of put it in there, which is not the case. You can go back to the very beginning of the Old Testament. In fact, you can go back to the first verse of the first book of the whole Bible, and you can see the Trinity, the threeness of God, already at play. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which looks like, at first glance, a very singular, doesn't it? Very singular expression of the nature of God. God is one, fine. But I was uh, amazed to discover from scholars who uh, know a lot more than me that the original Hebrew, because obviously the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for God that was used is Elohim. Beautiful sounding word. And the word Elohim that was used in the Hebrew is plural. So it's effectively saying, in the beginning, God's created the heavens and the earth. And what's more, and this kind of really blew me away, is that the Hebrew for created is singular. So effectively, this very first verse of the whole Bible is giving us a glimpse straight away into both the oneness, created, singular, and the threeness, God's, behind the creation. In the beginning, God, singular in being, threeness in person, created the heavens and the earth. And what do I mean by this being and personhood kind of phrase? Let me just pause and take stock. Because we're saying that God is one in being and three in person. So by being, we mean the essence of God, which is one of the words that the church has used over the last 2,000 years to kind of tap into the truth of the Trinity. By being, we mean the essence of God. Essence is, in some senses, what you are. Being. We're all human beings. We have the same essence, don't we? Nick and I are the same being in that sense. We're both human beings. We're the same what, but of course we're different who's. We're different people. We're different persons. So in that sense, the Trinity is one what, one being, and three who's. In other words, God is one and three at the same time, but not in the same way. So it's less about a contradiction and more perhaps about a paradox I'm glad to see a lot of very quizzical faces. I can almost see the speech bubbles in your heads and and brain cells pinging around all over the place. God is one and three at the same time, but not in the same way. Okay, stick with me. Number three. Not only is God one, being three persons, each of those persons is fully God. Jesus' parting words to his disciples, the last things he said to them, the commission that he gave them, 
the commission that he gave us who would follow him. In Matthew 28, verse 19, he said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Just as a brief aside, have you noticed already that Jesus here commands baptism as just part of the definition, part of the nature of being a follower of his? New Testament Christians would have had no concept of, of being a Christian not being baptized. It was all brought up in the same thing. And not only does Jesus command to be baptized, he also gets baptized himself. So he starts the gospel by demonstrating it. He ends the gospels by commanding it. So I would just say, if you would consider yourself a Christian in Christ, you trust in what Jesus has done for you, and you're yet to be baptized, I put it to you that Jesus not only commanded you to do it, he also demonstrated it himself. That is the kind of humble, trustworthy God that we have. I would encourage you, urge you to consider baptism if you haven't yet been baptized already as, just a, as part of being an authentic follower of Christ. Talk to me afterwards or talk to one of the other leaders or friends here if you want to know more about baptism. But Jesus did it, Jesus commanded it, and it's just part of the essence, as it were, of being an authentic follower of his. But back into the Trinity, notice how Jesus does make a distinction between all three members of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And notices how he, how he places them on the same level. He assumes they're all God. It would be odd if he said get baptized into one or two of these that are God, creator, and one or two of these that is not God, is created. That wouldn't, I don't think, make sense. And notice how he says that we have to be baptized into the name, not names. Why doesn't he say be baptized into the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And there we have it again. There's this beautiful way that singularity and plurality come together. It's like Jesus is saying, be baptized into the name, singular, what, of God, who, person, is Father, Son, and Spirit. One what, three persons. There it is in that, just that few words there. Number four. Each of the members of the Trinity is distinct, by which I mean the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. We know that because the Father sent the Son. They're different. The Son and the Father send the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. They are distinct. And in some senses, they do different things. They have, to an extent, a, a difference in role, by which I mean the Father made us. The Son died for us and rose for us. The Spirit comes alongside us to comfort and empower and counsel and encourage. We often pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Spirit. There is a distinction in who they are and to an extent what they do. And yet, cue more brain cells pinging around, number five, at the same time, they are fully united in purpose and activity. So it's not like one of them looks after creation, one looks after salvation, one looks after dwelling in you. All three are involved at the same time in all that God is doing. Uh, there's a wonderful book I'd recommend to you by A.W. Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy. And in that, he's got one chapter on the Trinity. And he shows you very briefly, but very profoundly, how within creation, the incarnation, that's the birth of Jesus, Jesus' baptism that we just looked at, the atonement, what he did on the cross that Nick was talking about before, the resurrection that we sang about, salvation that we always talk about, and the indwelling of the Christian that I'm talking about now, he shows you how all of those things involve Father, Son, Spirit working together in perfect unity, combined activity. It's not like one has a break whilst the other two do the work. 
So there is both a distinctiveness in role and activity, and there's both a total unity in purpose, will, and activity. And even now, I'm conscious that I don't have the vocabulary. It's like an out-of-body experience. Like I'm up there somewhere looking down on this person who's trying to pro- provide creaturely words and thoughts for what is the creator-like. And it's, to an extent, it is impossible. But we can know much about this. So what are we saying? That the knowledge of the Trinity, the Bible tells us that God is one being, one what, three persons, three who's within that being, each of whom is fully God, the same in eternity and glory and power. There is a distinctiveness in them. They are not the same as each other. And they also work together in total unity of purpose, will, and activity. How do you illustrate that? (laughs) Because analogies, by definition, always fall short, don't they? If an analogy was perfect, it would be the thing itself. And people have tried, haven't they, with eggs and ice and water and so forth, to illustrate the, um, the Trinity. And I love the one of the notes and the chord. I think that's a helpful one to an extent. And one other insight that I came across, about, which has helped some people, I hope it will help you, to understand, to get more of the knowledge of the Trinity, is to use the example of the human brain. See exhibit A, human brain. By the way, Bethany, thank you so much for doing these slides so brilliantly. This is Bethany's last Sunday with us. She's just graduated. She's going to return to the, the land of her fathers over the Severn Bridge. And she, as ever, she's doing a brilliant job helping us with the slides and was here at 8 in the morning setting this whole thing up. So thank you. And we'd love to pray for you afterwards. And you're doing a great job. This is the human brain. As you can see, it has been split. Because some have talked about and the analogy with the Trinity of something called split brain. It sounds fairly brutal. It's not quite as brutal as it sounds, but it's when the corpus callosum, this is where having a wife who has worked in a brain injury unit can help you, it's where the corpus callosum connecting the two hemispheres of the brain, the left and the right, is severed. And some of you may be experiencing a virtual severing of your brain at the moment, but when the corpus callosum is severed, the two hemispheres of the brain are to some extent detached, which can happen surgically, And there have been tests on on such people to whom it has happened. And there was one such test on one such split brain patient where what happened was they were given the activity of putting a pair of trousers on. And the test showed that at the same time with the left hand, the split brain patient was pulling his trousers up and with the other hand he was trying to pull his trousers down because the the two hemispheres of the brain were having difficulty talking to one another. One side of the brain wanted to do one thing. One side of the brain wanted to do the other thing. Now, in some senses, that's a terrible analogy for the Trinity because the Trinity is the perfect union of will. So it's never the case that the Holy Spirit is trying to do one thing and Jesus is doing the other. So in that sense, it's a terrible analogy. But I think it is helpful to an extent in that it gives us an insight into the possibility of one being, the person, one being, the what, having two spheres of consciousness, both acting almost independently at the same time. I'll put it in better description by quoting someone called Dr. Vince Vitale, who um, is a Christian apologist and an academic, doctorates from Princeton and Oxford. And he tells us why this is a helpful analogy by saying this, even though it's disanalogous as well. He says, even within a finite human person, we can have the semblance of something akin, so it's a bit like, something that's a bit like, two spheres of consciousness that are operating and have their own perceptions and concepts and impulse to act, and yet in some sense are within the same being. 
Here's the key point. If we have something like that, something like that, even within our finite human world, is it that crazy to believe that God could himself exist as a trinity? Three independent, if you like, spheres of consciousness existing within the same being, but united, not putting up and down the trousers at the same time. It gives us an insight, but it also, I think, again, judging by the quizzical expressions on lots of faces, it leaves us grappling with the mystery of this whole thing. There isn't an analogy that is perfect, not least because we're creaturely people are trying to find words to describe the creator, and that gives us a limitation. So number two, this segues us into the mystery of the Trinity. I'm trying to tell you what it is. The Bible does teach us what the Trinity is, and, not but, and it leaves us to some extent going, wow, this is mysterious. This is to a degree unknowable. The idea that God would be one in being and also three in person. You know, you might go to that passage in Mark 1, Jesus' baptism, and say, okay, at first reading, I could see how there could be three gods at work here called Father, Son, Spirit. Or I could see how there could be one God and the other two are kind of subordinate forces. But the idea that, that, there is, that all are God and that God is one is, by definition, mysterious. And it's okay to find it mysterious. But for some people, because it can't be explained fully, that becomes a reason to reject it. Indeed, to reject God, or the Christian God, certainly. But I want to say to you, if that's where you're coming from this morning, or to friends of yours, perhaps, if you had this kind of conversation, just because, I put it to you at least, that just because we can't fully understand something, does that mean that we therefore dismiss it as not being true? Just because you can't understand something fully, does that make it not true? And to help you with that, I'm going to tell you a short story. Well, I'm not. I'm going to ask. I'm not going to ask, but I'm going to show a video of a guy telling a short story. His name is Professor John Lennox. He works for the same Christian apologetics um, organization as Vince Vitale does. He's a wonderful older gentleman, professor of maths at Oxford, quite a sharp guy, to put it mildly, and is able to have some pretty interesting discussions with some of the leading scientists and brains and stuff around the world. And he tells a story of a, such a discussion that he was having with somebody who was pretty skeptical about the idea of the Trinity because it can't be fully understood. And the footage isn't great, the, the, the uh, visual quality, but I think follow the story with him and I think he'll help you to at least process the idea of the Trinity not being untrue simply because it is mysterious. So, Bethany, should we roll the video? <laughs> so that's the first point. Very briefly to the second point. God is three in one. Is it a mystery? Yes, it is. And am I allowed to tell a little story? Yeah, a oh, very, well, I think we should... We yeah, yeah, get to move so it on. Yeah. Okay. But do tell the story. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was talking to uh, about a thousand scientists, and a man came up to me afterwards, a physicist, and he said, that was very interesting, all that talk about God, but he said, do you know, I detect you're a Christian. And I said, you're... <laughs> very astute gentleman. Yeah. Well, that's what I said. I said, you're pretty sharp. And he said, he said, come off it, he said. Now, look, as a Christian, you're obliged to believe that God is a triunity, that Jesus was God and man. And he said, no, come on, you're a mathematician at Oxford. This is absurd. Can you explain it to me? Well, I said, can I ask you a question first? He said, sure. So I said, tell me, what is consciousness? And he thought for a second, and then he said, I don't know. I said, that's OK. Let me try an easier one. What is energy? 
Well, he said, I'm a physicist. I can measure energy. I could use it. I said, you know, that's not my question. What is it? He said, I don't know. Oh, I said, that's very interesting. You don't know. Tell me, I said, uh, do you believe in consciousness? Yes, he said. Do you believe in energy? Yes, he said. So I said, you believe in these two things, you don't know what they are. I said, should I write you off as an intellectual? <laughs> and he said, please don't. And I said, but that's exactly what you were going to do with me five minutes ago. Now I said, if you don't know what energy is, and nobody does, and if you don't believe that, you physicists, read Richard Feynman. <laughs> If you don't know what energy is, don't be surprised if energy, light, gravity, and consciousness are a mystery. Don't be surprised if you're going to get an element of this in God. You're bound to get it. But now I pushed him a bit further, you see. And I said, why do you believe in these things if you don't know what they are? And that was a bit difficult, so being kind chap, I tried to help him out. And I said, um, <laughs> you believe in these things because of their explanatory power as concepts. And he said, that's exactly right. And I said, look, of course I can't explain to you how God became human. But I said, it's the only explanation that makes sense of the evidence as I see it. And I said, I've got a simple analogy that might help you. It's a very low-level analogy, but at least it's biblical. I'm married. I've been married for 42 and a half years to the same person. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and my wife and I are, in a sense, one. We're two persons in one flesh, the Bible would say, but in one unit. And it seems to me that at the very least, don't misunderstand me when I say this, that this mystery is telling us something magnificent about God. God is not a monolith who, to put it crudely, was lonely, so he made a few people so that he could have somebody to talk to. <laughs> God is himself a fellowship. Now, that's undimensioned and we can't grasp it, but there is a sense in which I, I feel it's got to be something like that. What's he saying? He's saying we, we, we all believe in things that we don't fully understand based on the evidence that we find in front of us. And I think for Christians, the resurrection is the central example of that. For me and many others, it's the best explanation of the evidence in front of us. And it follows that if the resurrection is true, Christ was God, we can trust all that he said, not least the fact that he himself affirmed the Trinity. And the other thing that Lennox is saying, which I think is absolutely crucial, if God is infinite and eternal and transcendent and was present for all eternity before the foundation of the world, he will by definition be unlike us, finite, limited beings. It should be, he should be mysterious and unknowing. Otherwise, he's just a slightly more impressive version of you and me. I don't want a God who I can just quickly tick off and explain and box in. And neither could God be like that. We are the created. He is the creator. It is appropriate that we do exactly what the Bible tells us to do over and over and over again. The Bible affirms this reality. Psalm 145 verse 3 is a 
Classic example, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, says the psalmist, and his greatness is unsearchable. Just beautiful, that one verse the psalmist is very comfortable with saying, this I know about you God and I praise you for it, and there is much I don't know. All in the same psalm. Romans 11, Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing this famous letter to the Romans, spends 10, 11 chapters unpacking the wonder of the gospel, of our urgent need for Christ, and what Christ has done, and the implications of it, and he kind of culminates in Romans 11, verse 33, and says, and you can imagine him writing this with his eyes closed, if that's even possible, saying something like, oh, the depth, or saying exactly like, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. The Trinity absolutely provides pause for thoughts. And if you're not yet a Christian, it it should. If you are a Christian, it should. If you've got friends who are skeptical about Trinity, that's not unreasonable. What I'm putting to you is it shouldn't give us causes to doubt God. It should give us causes to doubt ourselves. Our own finiteness. Our own limitedness. And to say with the psalmist, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. Worship and awe and reverence is an appropriate response to the truth of the Trinity. And I love us to worship shortly in that ilk and just to gaze at God simply for who he is. Both knowable and mysterious and utterly majestic. What other implications along with that worshipful awestruck, he's God and I'm not, type response. What other implications should there be? In other words, what other beauties are there of the Trinity that we can touch and experience this morning? Number three, the beauty of the Trinity. I'm going to come full circle back to that original passage, Mark chapter 1 and verse 9. In those days, Jesus from Nazareth came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And what's the father saying over Jesus? What's he effectively saying? Saying, son, I love you. I love you. I love you. You give me such uh, delight. So proud of you. You give me such pleasure. That's the sense of what the Father is speaking over the Son. And of course, the love of God, we, we love to talk about it. We have this morning. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And one of the attributes we'll look at later in this series is the love of God. But is it not true to say, without the truth of the Trinity, we don't have a God who has always been love. We have a God who became love. Because if God is only one and not three in person, he could not have loved before creation. Because love requires an object of its affection, doesn't it? So just only as one, he could have been and was all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, self-sufficient, independent, and so forth. But he would have begun to love when he created that which could be loved. But the Trinity tells us that God has always been love. A community of unity and love in perfect fellowship, as John Lennox said, and love from all time, before there was even time. He did not begin to be love. He has always been love. The love that we know of him is an overflow of what has always been the case. 
I hadn't really thought about this, but it's just come to me. You know that out in, the, out in Kingston Market Square when it's sunny, the, the water comes up through the ground, the little sprinklers. Have you seen that? And the little kids go and play and have a great time. Any of you seen that? Yeah. I just, that kind of, just imagine that those sprinklers have just always been on since before there was even time, let alone before there was Kingston. They've always been just gushing up in the air, always been the case. And what happens is, is God creates people who come and step under what's always been the case, just standing in the love of God. Fountains just pouring over them. They didn't start springing up, they've just always been there. And when you see those children just having a great time, that, I think it helps us glimpse something of what happened at creation. God said, come and stand in what's always been the case. Perfect love. The unity of love and fellowship. And I think the beauty of the passage that we've just looked at, this passage in, in Mark, is it's, it's a bit like having a curtain drawn back and being given a sneak preview of what's been the case for all time. Father, Son, Spirit, perfect love, perfect unity, speaking of each other in perfect love and unity, giving of themselves, self-giving love. See, when you become a Christian, if that's the step you're ready to make this morning, and for those of us who have become, this is what happens or what happened? When you become a Christian, you enter through, the Bible says, quite a narrow gateway because it requires humility. You enter through a, a gateway of repentance and forgiveness. That's how you enter into God's kingdom and God's family. And you step into and live within, as a Christian, the perfect community of unity and love. You step in through a gateway of repentance and forgiveness and you step into and you live within what has always been the case, the perfect community of unity and love. And you know rather than knowing the judgment of God, you know the pleasure and the approval and the delight of God every single day in this life and the next. You see, to, to be a Christian, it's often called being in Christ. If you've been around church any time, you see a lot of the time the Bible talks about being a Christian as being in Christ. Nick was referencing it earlier on. Through faith, we become, in some mysterious way, united to Jesus, one with him. Credited with and rode with all of his perfection, all of his righteousness, all of his kind of uh, sparkling beauty, all of his sonship, you are robed with, crowned with, and united to. And then the Holy Spirit rests upon you as he rested upon Jesus making it possible, Romans 8 says for us, to be able to cry out, Father, Abba, Dad. And to be a Christian, therefore, is to be a child over whom God says every single day, I love you, I'm for you, I'm delighted with you, I'm so proud of you, I'm pleased with you, I'm excited for all that you are and for all that you will be. Every single day. At which point, some of you will be going, what about... What about what? United to Christ, in Christ. So nothing that you can bring to the table, good nor ill, affects this dynamic. So what the Father spoke over Jesus, I love you, I'm so proud of you, you're amazing, I'm delighted with you, I feel pleasure over just you being here. That is the status, the inheritance, the the, the daily invitation of being a Christian in Christ. Does it mean that God's finished with you, that he's not uh, working out the results of your salvation, shaping you, sanctifying you, changing you, challenging you, conforming you more into the image of Jesus? He's doing that, absolutely he is. He loves you too much to leave you as you are. 
but your status, your reality of who you are, what's stamped in your passport, what you wake up to every morning, is the Father singing over you, I love you, you are my son, my daughter, with whom I am not just moderately content, but with whom I am well pleased. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Not because I said it forcefully, but because it's true. To become a Christian is to step into the perfect community of unity and love, to be united to Christ, to be filled with the Spirit, just as Jesus was, and to receive every single day the Father speaking over you, you are my son, my daughter, with whom I am well pleased. And if you're not yet a Christian, that is what it looks like. Stepping in through a gateway of repentance and forgiveness into this eternal community of God who didn't just start being loving because he was lonely, has always been loving. And that changes everything. That changes how I see him, how I worship him, how I follow him, how I obey him, what I do with all of my life. It changes how I'm able to love you and other people because I know that I'm loved regardless. This is why it's so important. What you believe about God, who you think he is, affects everything. Let me just close with a personal story and then we're going to worship. Um, and I'll probably cry, but you know, that's nothing, what's new? Um, a few years ago, I was, uh, I think I'd just come on staff here at King's Church and was doing some training, uh, sort of theology training. Um, and the, uh, the whole day had been about the Trinity. So I was getting into it as I've been getting into it this week and this morning. And I spent the kind of couple of weeks afterwards just really, I guess, exploring the, the depth and the wonder of what it is to have a Trinitarian God and, and kind of talking to Father, Son, Spirit. Father, you love me, you're pleased with me. Jesus, you're my friend, you're my saviour. Holy Spirit, you come alongside and you fortify and you encourage me. Just really kind of exploring the wonder of the Trinity and focusing on that in my morning times of prayer and so forth. Hold that thought. And then... About two weeks later, I met up with someone called Joe Gill, who many of you remember, used to be a member of this church. And we had a coffee just around the corner, and she was coming into membership uh, at the church, so we met to chat. And that day, she too had been doing some kind of theology training, because she was doing a course based in London, where they were focusing particularly on what it means to live in the power of God, to see the supernatural power of a supernatural God at work in our lives. And she'd been doing some training uh, around that. And um, as she left her day's training to come and meet me, she said to the guy leading it that she was meeting me and I was a church pastor and so forth. And uh, the guy said, oh, I think I might have a word of knowledge for him. And word of knowledge is a wonderful gift from the Bible where God gives us something uh, to communicate to somebody else that you wouldn't have known otherwise, but God knows and he works through us. Anyway, Joe had recorded what he said on her phone and sent it across to me. We had our time together. And I was walking back up along the river here where is the river? Yeah, somewhere over there. I was walking back up along the river. It was night, dark, uh, dark I remember that, about seven o'clock. And I kind of put my headphones in and played this little audio uh, memo that this guy had spoken into. But only about a minute long, very down-to-earth guy. Hi, Philip, you don't know me. My name's so-and-so. Um, I felt the Father wanted to say a couple of things to you. And the first of which was a sort of general encouragement, and it was encouraging, but, you know, okay, that's good. Still walking along. And then he said something which kind of almost caused me to sort of topple over, topple over into the Thames. And I, I listened to it again this week and wrote down the transcript of it. He said this, um, Philip, one more thing. The Father has been showing you more and more to rely on all the three persons of the Trinity. <laughs> Sorry. The Father has been showing you more and more to rely on all the three persons of the Trinity. So, you've been having a season of really pressing into knowing Jesus as a friend and saviour, knowing the presence of the Spirit, and also knowing the Father's love. I sensed just like Mark 1, the Father's pleasure, as you rested in all three parts of the Trinity, explored the wonder of that and the security that it brings you. 
I remember thinking, God, I just, what, what? That guy didn't know me, and it was so kind of clear and specific. It just absolutely blew me away for two reasons. One, the reality of God speaking specifically and clearly to people changes things when we step out into that gift and take risks like that guy did. But number two, I just experienced something through the uniqueness of that gift. I experienced something of what I've been trying to explain. The wonder of what we all yearn for. (laughs) I know I'm on delicate ground here, but we all yearn for the approval of the Father. And I experienced that and I, I've had it to a good degree, isn't it? As a, I've had a, a great dad. But we all yearn for the approval of an earthly father. And the wonder of just experiencing God saying, I've seen what you've been doing. I love it. I'm so pleased with you. Keep going. Keep on exploring this. Pray Trinitarian prayers. I'll make you safe and secure. Well done. I tell you, it just changed a lot for me. And I tell you that story, I suppose, for those two reasons. One, to invite you this morning to step afresh, either for the first time as a new Christian or afresh, someone who is a Christian, into this perfect Trinitarian community to let the Holy Spirit or invite the Holy Spirit to fall on you because he's the one, Romans tells us, that makes it possible for us to cry out, Abba, Father. Step into that afresh this morning. I'm telling you, it changes everything. Then you live from a position of guaranteed approval, guaranteed security. Do I all the time? No. That's why I need to step back into it afresh because I strive and I forget and I'm fallible and I'm guessing maybe you are too. So step back in afresh to that perfect, loving, Trinitarian Godhead. Ask the Holy Spirit, Ellen, can you in the band come and join us? And let the Holy Spirit work in your heart and experience now, experience it now. Holy Spirit, come, I pray. Fall upon each person here as you did upon Jesus. And may each person know that to be in Christ is to receive the affirmation and the love and the approval and the eternal delight of the Father. And may each of us cry out in response, Abba, Father, I love you too. I follow you. I obey you. I want to live for you. And I pray too, Spirit of God, in these moments of worship, would you do as you wish to do? Would you rest on us, fall upon us as you did at Jesus' baptism? Help us to see you, God, as you really are. Help us to worship you with reverence and with awe and with appropriate humility. May we say in our hearts things like, God, you are extraordinary and majestic and both knowable and beyond all knowing. And may we also cry in our hearts, Abba, personal loving Father. Oh God, (laughs) how have you done this? How have you, the mighty, mysterious, eternal, triune, transcendent one, made yourself even remotely knowable to us, let alone so personal, let alone made a way through Christ for us to live in perfect community and fellowship with you, today, this week, and forever. May we pray prayers this week according to who you are. May we address the Father as being Father, the Son for his friendship and achieving work, his kingship, the Spirit for his presence and power and encouragement and fortification. May we know what I know and I knew, the delight of the Father as we explore the Trinity in all its wonder and majesty. Please speak to us now, God. Please give us what you gave 
that guy didn't even know a few years ago. Give us words of knowledge that would encourage and cut to the heart perhaps. We want to know you, touch you, experience you, encounter you. We want that riverside moment where we suddenly realize, oh my, oh my, God is here. And he's supremely mighty and so tenderly good. Shall we stand?